0: Welcome to episode 76 of Breakup Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, Culture Editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse.
0: As we're a month away from the summer solstice, though you wouldn't believe that from the weather, we're going to be talking about Stonehenge today. Now, the exhibition The World of Stonehenge at the British Museum has been on since February and it's running till mid-July. It's the first major exhibition on Stonehenge to be staged in London, and there's been no exhibition at all in Britain for 35 years. Over 430 objects have been gathered from all over Europe, almost two-thirds loans, and most have never been seen in the UK before. So to anyone who hasn't been yet, this is a once-in-a-lifetime moment.
1: It is extraordinary to think that we all know what Stonehenge looks like, and most of as have been, or at least driven past it, but we still don't really know much about it, except to be awed by the fact it was built an astonishing 4,500 years ago, around the same time as the Sphinx and the Great Pyramid of Giza. But like all great exhibitions, this one at the British Museum is out to fill some of those gaps in our knowledge, and here to tell us all about it and to unlock its mysteries as much as he can in the short space of this podcast is the exhibition's curator, Dr Neil Wilkin. We're delighted to to have you with us. Good morning, Neil.
2: Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning, Neil. We've
0: loved, it's lovely to have you on. Uh, we love this exhibition. We obviously want everyone to go. Now, before we look drill down and look at some of the individual extraordinary objects, tell us everything you know about Stonehenge.
2: Wow, how long have you got? I think the important thing that we're trying to get across in the exhibition is, is that there's no one Stonehenge. It's very easy now that the monument is fixed in the landscape and, and well protected by English heritage to think that it's always stood and always looked the way it does as we see it when we, when we drive past on the way to Cornwall or st- sitting in a traffic jam on the a- A303. But the, the reality is that the monument was many different things at different times. In, in the exhibition, we look at three key phases. The first phase, when it's a, a cemetery site, believe it or not, so a place for the dead, when the blue stones are brought from Wales, that remarkable journey of about 250 kilometres carrying these, these big... Um, big rocks from from Wales, bringing them to Salisbury Plain. And then 500 years later, around 2500 BC, when it takes the form that you and I would recognise with the the great sarsens forming those iconic doorways. And then we look at the third phase when it becomes... A bit like Westminster Cathedral, uh, a a monument that's somewhat crystallised and frozen in time, but which everyone wants to be associated. So you start to get burial mounds, really remarkable grave goods and golden objects buried in the burial mounds around the monument. So the monument's fixed, but the landscape around it is filling up with with the ancestral dead. So those are the three big moves that we explore in exhibition. But as you've already alluded to in the introduction, what we're trying to do is go beyond that and, and Something the British Museum's very keen on is to to put things in in perspective um in terms of the, the setting of Stonehenge, it's its importance at a national scale and at a European scale. So there's a fair bit of, of what you might call levelling up going on in the exhibition where we're saying, look, Stonehenge is important, but actually there's some remarkable, equally remarkable monuments and sites um, built around the same time across uh, Britain, Ireland, Europe. And, you know, we, we have amazing objects from Orkney, astonishing objects from Bruner Boyne, the bend of the Boyne in, in Ireland and from, and from Europe. So, so really, we're we're trying to put um, Stonehenge in context, and and that's why um, we weren't um, successful in borrowing Stonehenge itself because we actually had this plan to uh, to put it in a in a wider context. At least that that's what I tell people when they come and ask why why we don't have Stonehenge.
1: <laughs> so, so which brings us on to sea henge. Tell us about that yeah. because that was discovered in Norfolk, and I was in Norfolk this weekend, and I was. Just want to ask you where exactly that was discovered and tell our listeners all about it.
2: We, we actually have about fifty percent of the the posts, um, these amazingly preserved oak. Uh, posts from home next the sea on the, on the coast of, of Norfolk. And we have half of the monument, but actually the other half is still in Lynn Museum. So that we've got this remarkable situation where you can actually visit half of the monument in London and then catch a train to King's Lynn and see the other half. I think that must be a, a first for a Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments that you've actually got 50-50 split between different parts of the country. Um, but this, this site was, was found by a chap out looking for or I think um, fish fish bait um, on the on the beach in in Norfolk in the late nineties, and he really got his eye in, and he, he started to see the the beach in in a in a way that nobody previously had, and he recognised that it was a, cir- a circle of posts and something in the middle. And um, to cut a long story short, once once the archaeologists had revealed this site, it, it turned out to be this most remarkably preserved um, oak monument made of timbers that have been Put upright, so preserved, much like the Mary Rose, that, that that ship that that went down off the south coast of England, um, preserved for four thousand years, and then in the middle of this circle was um, an upturned oak tree with the roots pointing up towards towards the heavens. So. A really, really remarkably strange but compelling monument that was preserved in, in what used to be a salt marsh, but was inundated by the sea, which which is the reason why um, it it still survives to this day.
0: And so these are these are basically temples, Stonehenge and Sea
2: yeah. Henge, which is yep. sort
0: of more like Oakhenge Henge, <laughs> uh, are basically temples, but with Stonehenge, if you sort of travelled in a time machine and sat around a mud hut with these Bronze Age chieftains. How does the conversation go? It goes, we should build We should build something here because it's quite a good place to have a Druid, you know, summer solstice festival. But, you know, a bit like sort of difference between Habitat and Conran, you know, the stone I want, actually, I really want it from this quarry in Wales. So can we all schlep down there and haul it 250 miles back here? I mean, what's going on there?
2: Yeah, was, there's many great questions and, and um, points in there. To, to, to start with, I think Stonehenge is a sort of cathedral of this time period. Um, Seahenge is much more of a community hall or a community church. So there are, there are different scales. I think that's that's important. What, what Stonehenge represents is a coming together, we think, of people from quite a big part of southern England, if not actually beyond into the north of England and possibly even Scotland, people coming to that monument to visit it. But also potentially to help to build it during at least the second phase that I refer to, that sarsen phase, when it takes on the form I recognised. But to go back to the bluestones, which are the first monument and, and, and the, the question you asked, why did they build it there? Why is it on Salisbury Plain? Why did they go to the remarkable lengths of bringing the bluestones? I mean, that is a, a great question and one that we, can, we can't answer, but we can answer, but we can start to think around. One thing is that Salisbury Plain is a very unusual landscape, both today, but also 4,000 odd years ago, because it was relatively open at a time when much of England and Wales and Scotland would have been covered in, in tree Um, cover so it it presents opportunities for for farmers to have a kind of open landscape but it also probably goes deeper than that it probably seemed like quite a remarkable landscape from a more spiritual or you know um, religious point of view because it was so unique Um, so it's possible that people are drawn to it for different different reasons but the, the question of why you would bring your um stones from, why you bring stones from Wales, that might be to do with the fact that the people who are building the first Stonehenge are actually moving, moving from somewhere that they've been for maybe generations and they want to bring with them their ancestral monument. And, and, and that idea has been presented by Mike Parker Pearson at UCL, that actually the stones that form uh, the Bluestone Monument at Stonehenge, some at least may have stood in an earlier set of monuments or monument in Wales. So it's a bit like these remarkable stories you hear of of Shakespeare taking down his Globe Theatre and rebuilding it on the other side of the Thames. It's almost, you know, you, you, people are actually taking their property, taking their something important to them with them on that remarkable pilgrimage to to the Salisbury landscape we we can't tell the exact story but we can we can get a sense that whatever was actually motivating these people it must have been pretty big right because you wouldn't go to those lengths if you didn't feel that there was something really important about those stones and bringing them to this new place something else you touch on is is power so you know, I don't think this is necessarily something that could be done in a kind of committee decision. Presumably somebody's calling the shots. So that gives us a sense that perhaps um, this is about a charismatic leader or a group of people, a group of leaders who who are saying, look, I want to move this. I want to move this monument, and you're going to help me. So it's it's possible that there's also a power dynamic to that moment as well, which is quite interesting. Given that we don't have any writing, uh, unlike the Egyptians, we can't identify pharaohs or leaders. But you might see in that episode, in that act, um, a kind of hierarchy or a sense of power relations emerging.
0: So we might find the site of the original Stonehenge.
2: Well, Mike Parker Pearson at UCL thinks he might have already um, identified um, a location where at least some of the bluestones blue were were removed. That was the subject of a really interesting BBC um, documentary, um, I think, during the lockdown. So not, not that long ago.
1: Where That's is that? Really, where? Where, where um, is it? It's close
2: to movie? the Presley Hills, so where the Blue Stones are from, so in sort of West, West Wales.
1: It must be so exciting to be beginning to sort of unravel this mystery. Um, tell us a bit about the incredibly beautiful other things you've got on display there, like the Nebra Sky Disc and the Sun Pendant and that gold lozenge.
2: The objects you've mentioned are made of metal and that's something that we really put at the heart of the exhibition. We think, um, and this is, I think in the exhibition, it's the first time that this idea has been properly kind of articulated when the metal age begins, um, around 2,500 BC. So just after Stonehenge takes the form that you or I would recognize when that moment begins, you see a major upheaval in society. Um, You see people coming in, in Britain, you see people coming from Europe to Britain, bringing this new technology of metalworking and lots and lots of things change. The way people bury their dead changes, the type of objects that people use change. But also in the course of the next couple of hundred years, the population changes and we don't know yet what the processes of that change are. There's no evidence of, of, of conflict and sort of mass graves or anything like that. The other possibility and one that's come much more into focus in the light of the pandemic is that um, there's maybe the spread of, of disease and viruses. Nonetheless, What happens is that there's a real shift in in priorities and in culture and society, and that's represented by objects in the exhibition like the Nebra Sky Disc. So you go from a world that's much more sort of a sense of big communal monuments like Stonehenge, even though you've got beginnings of hierarchy to a much more um, a a stronger sense of an elite emerging when metal is available so in objects like the Nebra disc what's important about that object is it's a kind of portable version a possessable individual version of Stonehenge no longer you know something that belongs to the community but actually something that could be possessed by an individual it's from Germany and on the disc are encoded um, information about the sunrise and sunset and um, possibly even about a leap year rule for bringing your solar and lunar calendar into sync. The kind of knowledge that if a priest or a, a leader of society possessed would give them a lot of kudos in, in that community in that culture. So the Nebra disc then is, is an absolutely critical moment in the in the history of of, of, of Europe and and by proxy um, Britain. But it amazingly has a British connection because the gold that makes the stars and the moon um, on the disc originated in in we think Cornwall. So it's actually making this remarkable trade route journey right across Europe to end up being embedded in this in this bronze disc. And the other objects you mentioned you mentioned the, the Bush Barrow Lozenge This is a a chief or a leader who's buried um, close to Stonehenge and he's buried with a remarkable set of of gold and bronze objects. He's kind of, I think, the sort of Sutton Hoo uh, king of the Bronze Age. He has that kind of level of status. And what I find really, uh, what gives me goosebumps about those objects is that there's a very high probability that they were worn by this this man we think, this chap, inside Stonehenge itself while he was conducting ceremonies or meetings. And I find that very powerful, that idea of the monument not as a, a relic, not as a, a kind of um, visitor attraction, but as a, a real live kind of house of parliament or, 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 or religious centre. This idea that the monument was was powerful, I think is something that we can quite easily forget when we visit as as tourists.
1: I love the story behind the sun pendant because just some isn't wasn't it some retired engineer just sort of rootling around with a metal detector.
2: That's right. So in about 2018, I think it was a a, a chap called a metal detectorist called Bob. Um, <laughs> he, he, they're always. <laughs> <laughs> he was due to go sailing with his friends, and he had a, a a premonition that it was not a good day to go sailing, and it was a good day to go detecting and he you know detecting, and he was he was he was right, and he he's been working this. A couple of fields for for a while for a few months and he'd been finding some really important objects bronze Age or ob- bronze Age objects iron age objects so clearly this had been an important place and um it, it was um improved farmland it had been a bog before it had been improved um so he knew that it was an interesting location anyway this day he he got this signal and he had this um, moment of revelation when he turned up the soil and found this this absolutely beautifully preserved because of the kind of peaty damp soil gold um, pendant. And it's decorated with the image of the sun on one side and, a, and a, on the reverse, a more abstract uh, decoration. But it, it's unlike anything else, apart from one object that was found in the 1800s, I think, in um, canal work near Manchester, and that disappeared, um, possibly melted down or in somebody's safe deposit box. So, you know, if you if you have a Bronze Age pendant and you want to contact the British Museum, please, please do. <laughs> but th- this is the only surviving one. And um, it's from the very end of... Of our story. So it's from about 800 BC, at a time when the world is, is suffering from a lot of challenges, Britain at least is suffering from a lot of challenges. There's environmental decline, there's a sense of sh- a social breakdown. So there's a real sense of crisis. And you do wonder um, if this object and the many other objects that are deposited in rivers and bogs around this time, aren't actually offerings being made to try and arrest the environmental and social decline that people are encountering at this time. So it's quite a, a touching object. It's a sort of moment in time when somebody threw something very precious to them into this into this bog in the, in the hope of, I suppose, um, a return on their sacrifice. But at that point, the exhibition ends because it's a point when many of the themes and many of the trends that we're exploring in the exhibition come to an end. And Britain goes very dark for a couple of hundred years so it's a, it's a really nice place to end the exhibition and it's nice to end it on a new acquisition
0: So the British museums actually bought it
2: We were able to buy it with um, funds from the um, art fund and from the American Friends of the British Museum so it's um, it's it's one of um, one of the, the finest objects in in the collection that I look after and it's really a real coup to able to to display it in, in into the future
1: And does Bob get anything for finding it?
2: Bob, um, yes, so in this country, as Ed Ed knows very well, in this country, the Treasure Act um, protects um, our our, our cultural heritage that's found by detectives and offers a reward to the landowner and to the finder, split 50-50. So he did did receive um, quite, well, I think probably a life-changing sum.
0: It's um, the Portable Antiquities Scheme. It's a wonderful scheme. Traditionally, archaeologists and metal detectors are at war, but the great thing about the Portable Antiquity Scheme is it encourages metal detectors to report their finds and they can be sure that um, they will get a share of the proceeds. So they turn up, um, must be about a thousand objects a year, are, are kind of added to public collections and catalogued, properly catalogued. And every year, the British Museum has a little breakfast uh, where you can go and handle the. Um, and see the best objects as Staffordshire hoard, of course, is one of the greatest examples of the metal detectors finding an extraordinary hoard of coins and gold and handing it over to the public. It's a wonderful, wonderful scheme. But we've segued away, we should go back to buried people like the, we haven't discussed the Amesbury Archer,
1: yeah, he's the
0: other dead bloke you've got on display.
2: So the, the, the Ames, Amesbury Archer is an incredibly interesting character and, and something the exhibition is trying to do is say, look, this is a time of people like us, and that's sometimes forgotten, and we want to tell the story of people because that's how, I think, um, as humans, that's how we relate to the past as person to person. So this is a story of a man who was buried relatively close to Stonehenge about 2400 BC, so a short period after the monument takes on the sarcen form, that iconic form that we recognize. So the monument was still new, still crisp when he when he was when he was alive and when he when he died. And he's buried with a remarkable range of objects in his grave. But to zoom into a couple of the objects he's buried with, there's some very small gold, what we call um sort of hair ornaments. They're kind of like prehistoric scrunchies that were probably worn in his hair. And then he also has these little tiny copper daggers um, possibly also used as arrow heads or, or spears that could be sort of multifunctional and there's the, the thing that strikes you is how small they are and the reason they're so small both the gold work and the met and the copper is because this was a time when metal was brand new so we have to try and put ourselves back into a stone age world where you've you've been working flint for generations you know since the last ice age and suddenly someone brings um, this new material to your attention this metal and it must have seemed like Alchemy—it must have seemed like magic to see someone actually working metal, turning ore, the stone into liquid, you know, glowing liquid, and then casting it into an object that that could be used. So it must have seemed really ma- magical. And what's fascinating about the Amesbury Archer is he's buried not just with the products of metal, some of the earliest that would have been seen in Britain, but also with a little black square stone. That was probably an anvil so we think that this is a um, this is a metal worker so he could have been the man who's actually showing people in britain for the first time look this is his new material but the the remarkable thing about him is that he he wasn't born in britain the analysis of his teeth and the drinking water which is locked the chemicals from the drinking water um are locked in your teeth believe it or not as, as you grow up and as you an ad- become an adult um, and we know from studying that that he probably was born and grew up in the foothills of the Alps. What drew him to England is a really interesting question. I mean, I like to think it's it's the kind of fame, the growing fame of Stonehenge and that, that much like... Like today, when you go to different parts of the world, you'll see Stonehenge featuring in TV adverts and um, and 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 programs on telly in 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 Spain or China. I think it probably had that kind of infamy right across or fame right across right across uh, Europe. And what was important about that Saracen phase monument? Was that it was the first time really in certainly in Britain and actually across much of Europe that people had dressed stone. And I think it's easy for us to forget that because we have these wonderful buildings like St. Paul's and the House of Parliament. But you know, stone up until now had normally been unhewn in its moment, in its time. This was an incredible monument that, that had required hundreds, thousands of, of, of hours of, of labor.
1: So I think what's so amazing about this exhibition is it's almost like the beginning of something isn't it rather than this is by no means definitive is it it's just a kind of stepping stone to to what else is is you're going to be able to open up so i i just wonder where what's going to happen when it shuts in the middle of july
2: then what when it closes that that will be it for this exhibition but what's already obvious to, to me and to my colleagues is that the, the exhibition on this topic an exhibition on this topic in 5 or 10 years will be very different and that's because um, archaeology is constantly finding new objects Ed's, Ed's referred to the, the way in which detectrists are completely transforming the public, are completely transforming our knowledge. Archaeological science is developing at a huge uh, you know, incredible pace. One of the most interesting things that draws draw to people's attention is the way the ancient DNA is transforming our knowledge of the relationship between people. So now when when you find a one of these round barrow burials with several graves in, in inside it, now you can actually say were these people related? Were they were they brothers and sisters? Were they fathers and sons or great grandsons and great grandfathers? So you're starting to able to piece together the family trees. So, I think instead of this being prehistory it's becoming more and more a, a proto-history or a historical era when you can start to talk about individual lineages and, and kinship and, and relationships and, and what makes that fascinating from a museum's point of view is that when those people are buried with objects as they, as they very often are in the time period that, that, that we 're talking about, you can then start to say well isn't it interesting that you know brother and sister are buried with the same type of decoration on their pot? so all of a sudden things are coming into focus in a way that they previously haven't and the past is becoming much more personal the exhibitions of the future will not be at the kind of broad scale that we've done in this exhibition they will be much more fine grain and bring you into the stories of individuals and I'm I'm I for one I'm really ready for that and I think it's going to transform how the public relates to this deep deep part of our history
1: I think what's so interesting about Stonehenge, I mean, I'm old enough to remember being able just to when it, wander... When it was around. built. <laughs> oh. not, not quite, but I can remember being able to just walk around it. Anyone could. And of course, now with this exhibition, you're going to get even more interest in it. I mean, how? what are the plans for the monument itself?
2: Um, and what I would say to people is that this exhibition is not trying to re- replace... The idea of visiting the monument. What I, what I hope it will do though, is people that might have visited as a child or as a parent taking a child. If they come to the exhibition at the, the British Museum, I think that what they might find is that it, they, they actually want to revisit the site. Because you you have new eyes, you have a new perspective on how it fits in. Brit- Britain's kind of reopening uh, after COVID, and I think it's a really interesting moment to connect the British Museum and Stonehenge to sort of of the jewels in the in the cultural crown of 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 the country, and and say, look, uh, it's a great time to visit both. What are you going to do about the tunnel?
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm. I'm. I'm lucky that I'm. I'm not involved. I'm not involved. Sorry to 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 be evasive. I'm not involved in in, in that decision making. But but the, the there are there are a panel. Uh, there are a committee of archaeologists who are appointed um, scientific committee um, that are made up of really the some of the most. Um, knowledgeable and careful uh, thinkers on the subject of Stonehenge, and they're the ones that are advising.
0: So I keep I keep having this massive row with the historian Tom Holland, who says that uh, the tunnel is going to desecrate Stonehenge. Now, I don't really understand that, because first of all, I think if you dig a tunnel, you know, obviously the point of the tunnel is to stop uh, the traffic which I think ruins the vista of Stonehenge. But secondly, presumably it will throw up extraordinary archaeological finds so what is it going to ruin is it going to ruin various sort of grave sites
2: as all well? i think you'd have to speak to tom and and the the the, the, the team that are are posing the, the tunnel to get to get a sense of what they think is at risk certainly you know just from a, a neutral point of view any archaeological any any development that's done and um, would be preceded by archaeological excavation yeah, yeah. so there is a sense of control but but at the same time any archaeology that's ever done is is a one-off experiment so you don't get to repeat that process so things are lost in archaeological digs and that's why it's such a difficult decision because there are probably like like many planning challenges there are pros and cons to doing any type of archaeological uh, any kind of building work in 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 Areas that have lots of heritage. What I would say though is that what it reveals to me, and what the intensity of the debate that you have on Twitter and you see in the newspapers as well, what it what it reveals to me is just the 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 way in which Stonehenge is such a sort of. Um, touchstone for our sense of identity in a way that I find very interesting. I think it's something that particularly English people may find, have found in the past difficult to talk about that sense of their identity as a nation or whatnot. But I think what's interesting is the way that Stonehenge constantly reveals itself as a touchstone for our sense of our deep uh, connection to the British or English landscape. I think that's a very, it's really revealed that to me, how, how how connected it is to our sense of the past.
0: The reason I love archaeology, not that I'm in any shape an expert, and the reason I was so keen to ensure we saved the Port antiquity scheme is that there's, for me, nothing more evocative than uncovering an object that's been in the ground for 2000 years. And you feel an immediate connection with the person you drop that object and you start to construct in your head a story about, you know, how was that object made? What was it used for? Why was it dropped? You know, did that person run around for three days saying, oh, I've lost my bloody signal. And again, it goes back to what you were saying, Neil, which I really resonated with me, which is this story about people. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, however sophisticated we become, everything that gets us out of bed is about human interaction and people and the ability to connect with your ancestors through the objects they've left behind. And with every year that passes to increase your understanding, to me is incredibly exciting.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there's, there's actually an object in the exhibition that's, that was just discovered before the exhibition opened. And it's a chalk uh, sort of cylinder that's been decorated with a range of motifs. It was buried, um, in Yorkshire about the same time as the bluestones were built at Stonehenge. But the, what's really powerful about it is that it was buried with, with three children. The two youngest were holding hands and the eldest child was protecting the, the two youngest. And in the same grave is, is an object that didn't get the headlines, but to my mind is, is just as powerful as this chalk cylinder with all these strange symbols on it. And that's a little chalk Ball, like perfectly uh, spherical ball. And just something about the size of it makes you think of it in the hand of a child or a toddler. And I think it's in that moment that, as you describe, you have that time just collapses away. It falls away. And you have that moment of connection with somebody or a, a mourning parent um, who's lost a child um, 5,000 years ago. And that's what makes us human. And that's what um, connects us back in in, in time and, and puts us in, it gives us a sense of humility and context and perspective, I think. And that's, that's why I find museums and archeology span really, really valuable is it, it gives us that sense of, of of our place in the universe.
1: I've been working on this idea for a celebration day on the Sunday after the summer solstice. So this year, it'll be 26th of June, where we all just stop for a minute and think about one of our ancestors or someone who's died and just sort of remember them, which is quite interesting because we don't have a day of the dead here. We're very bad. As Brits at connecting with our ancestors, which is why, you know, Stonehenge is probably so valuable, because we ha- have no other way of doing that. I so, think you're right.
2: Well, thank Brilliant. you so
1: much, Neil. That was well, absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. Indeed.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you.
0: Next week, the extremely accomplished and renowned journalist and broadcaster Mary Ann Seacart is going to be joining us. Her most recent book, The Authority Gap is an alarming perspective on the continuing bias towards men in the workplace. But on a more cheerful note, she's gonna be talking to us about the 2022 Women's Prize for Fiction. She's chair of the judging panel. It includes Lorraine Candy, Pandora Sykes, Anita Setty, and Dorothy Coombson, who's also going to be with us on the podcast.
1: Yes, and Dorothy is a global best-selling author whose books have been translated into 30 languages. And her new book, I Know What You've Done, is a Sunday Times bestseller. Dorothy also hosts the Happy Author podcast to encourage new writers, and she and Marianne will be here to talk about the six women on the Fiction Prize shortlist, so do join us next week. Sadly, that's all we've got time for this week, but don't forget that the latest edition of Country and Townhouse is out now at selected newsstands and Waitrose, as well as online, of course, along with the 2022 edition of Great British Brands.
0: We can be found at CountryandTownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guests. With all the latest news on interiors from Carolynette, and just add forward slash newsletter to subscribe both to the weekly magazine newsletter and to the Great British Brands monthly one. We love your feedback, so keep it coming to charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. See you next week.